Hey guys, this is Andrew. My guest today is Mara Grossman. If you're in the legal technology industry, you'll know Mara is a bit of a celebrity. As context, just before I give you Mara's background, it may come as a surprise that Gen AI is actually not the first version of AI that the legal industry and judges specifically have resisted the adoption of. That technology, the first time around, was e-discovery. And Mara was actually the flag-carrying champion to get that through the necessary legal hoops to be adopted. And there are some really helpful lessons from that precedent case that we can apply in the world of Gen AI today. But man, this conversation went so far beyond just that topic. We get into why there's actually a strong legal argument for why judges are wrong in trying to block the use of Gen AI. We talk about how law changes when deepfakes make evidence impossible to validate. We talk about the issues we're already seeing manifest as Gen AI tools get into malicious hands. Whether or not the New York Times is a valid argument against OpenAI for training on their content. It's just such an interesting intellectual tour of technology, law, and legal ethics, while also covering a bunch of very pragmatic considerations around the risks and the opportunities with this new technology. As always, the key takeaways from my interviews are available on ctlresearch.com, but if you're here to listen to the full audio, I hope you enjoy it. Mara, it's so great to have you on. Great to be here with you. So you have such an interesting background. You've been a practicing lawyer for 25 years. You're now a professor of computer science. And there's so many interesting things I want to talk about at the intersection of law and computer science. But let's maybe just start back in your work around e-discovery, because I think people treat Gen AI as like the first time we've had to deal with the impact of technology in the legal profession, but really it isn't. And you did a lot of that pioneering work the first time we saw this. So before we get into the specifics and all the interesting conversation around this, Maybe just a bit of a, a primer would be good on what is e-discovery, because <laughs> it feels like that was the first piece of technology that really took over the legal profession. And then we can get into some of the play-by-play -play of what happened over time. Sure. So in litigation, there is a point at which time the parties exchange evidence. I show you my cards, you show me your cards, what we both have that sort of supports our case or hurts the other side's case. And most often, recently, this is no longer documents, this is electronic evidence. And mm. as we move through the 2000s and into the 2000s and more recently, this went from a couple of boxes, bankers' boxes of paper documents to millions of email, email, text messages, now it's Slack, you name it. And the question for a lawyer who's representing a client is, how do I find the 20 or 60 emails that shed some light on whatever my client's dispute is? How do I find these in a vat of 20 million electronic pieces of information? So e-discovery mm. is that process of identifying, collecting, processing, searching, and ultimately producing to the other side the evidence that's in, in, mm. a, in a litigation matter. Makes sense. It's a great overview. And as you describe it, my first reaction is, what could possibly be controversial about that? And I'm curious then, <laughs> how, what was and then how was that ultimately resolved? So if I'm the producing party, in other words, I'm the one who's answering a request from you, often my incentive is to give you the least amount that I can reasonably get away with because, <laughs> as we all know, by and large, what we put in our emails and our texts isn't often helpful. It may be brutally honest. So 
one party is trying to not only minimize its cost because the, this process is is extremely expensive to collect it all and process it all and have attorneys review it at a very high billing rate, but it is also very sensitive to trying to decrease the amount of information that's revealed. And the other side has the exact opposite incentives to make it as painful and expensive as possible to, mm-hmm. to get somebody to settle and to find whatever they can, because eventually there'll be an off-color joke or someone toward statement that hurts the other side. So you've got this sort of very adversarial process that leads to tremendous amounts of disputes. Got it. Got it. Interesting. And were there issues where judges putting up their hands and saying, hey, we're, we're going to limit the amount to which you can use technology in reviewing or producing these documents? Were there were any sort of like system-wide points of friction that came out when the technology was introduced? Judges hate disputes over discovery. Discovery is supposed to be a party-driven process. And Judges really hate, most judges, having to get involved in this nitty-gritty stuff, which they really see as a completely different set of fights than the merits of whatever you and I have in its dispute, whether it's our lease or our contract or our finances or whatever it is. So you've Mm. got often a judge who is hesitant to get involved in resolving these disputes prior to the introduction, the technology we're, we're going to talk about, this was all a manual process. So either I would sit in a warehouse with uh, 20 boxes of documents and go through them one by one. And if it was relevant to the litigation, I'd put like a green sticky on it. If it was not relevant, I'd put a red sticky on it. And if I wasn't sure or I had a question, I might put uh, a yellow sticky on it. Fast forward to the digital age, and we're dealing with something completely different. So what people would do was essentially what you do when you go to Google. You would try to come up with a bunch of search terms that were likely to find the relevant documents. The problem Mm. is when people are doing sniggly things, they don't tend to say, let's go bribe at (laughs) so-and-so. They speak in code. So it's time for our baseball game or whatever. And so keywords don't often find a lot of what it is you're looking for. So people would use keywords or what we call search terms to try to find the relevant information. And then they would put eyeballs on it. And when Mm. I was at my law firm, we were working on massive cases like the World Trade Center leasing, things with huge amounts of documents. And this was just infeasible if you have three attorneys in 20 million documents and we don't know all the words people are going to use to refer to things. Some people called it the unfortunate incident, the plane crashes, the the terrorist. It just could be called everything. So Hmm. how do you find that evidence? So I was overseeing the discovery process for my firm and said there has to be a better way to do this. And and technology created this problem. Technology must be able to solve it. So I started to mm. attend computer science conferences, and I thought maybe I'll learn something about computer science or AI technology. At that point, we called it machine learning. That will help me f- figure out how to make this 
task easier for lawyers. And I came across a professor from the University of Waterloo, where I now work, named Gordon Cormack, who was one of the top spam guru people in the world. And the light bulb went off, spam, ham, mm-hmm. ham being the good stuff, <laughs> relevant, yeah. not relevant, privileged document, not privileged document, interesting document, not interesting document. And I said, isn't that the same problem? So I went up to him and said, but you know so much about spam and spam filtering. He had developed many technologies for spam filtering. And I said, do you think we could use that same technology on legal evidence? And he said, Mm. I don't see why not. It's essentially the same problem. You train an algorithm to be able to distinguish in one case, and from spam, in another case, relevant from not relevant. So we started to tweak this technology that was used originally for spam filtering and start to use it for this task. People thought I was on Mars. Everybody at my firm was like, go back into your office and when you can, when you make sense, come back out. But we found that when we use that process side by side with the lawyers using their keywords and their searches and their manual process, we found a lot more evidence than they did. And Mm. so we decided between 2009 and 2011, the only way we're going to convince people of this is if we actually do a formal experiment and pit the humans against the technology and demonstrate in a very controlled, orchestrated study that the technology was better. And so we did that and published the paper in 2011 in the Richmond Journal of Law and Technology, which was what the courts then were able to rely on to say this tech has passed scientific muster so it can mm. be used because up to that point, they didn't know whether it was better or worse and nobody wanted to be the first guinea pig in the first case with absolutely no proof. So our paper was the, the grounding that allowed the legal industry to adopt this technology. And that was roughly in 2012, the first case came out that cited Grossman and Cormac for the proposition that this technology is at least as good, if not better, than lawyers, and it's permissible Hmm. to use to find evidence in cases. It's such an amazing story, and I'm so glad you did that because now I'm laying the groundwork for all that we have here today. But I guess it surprises me just intuitively, not knowing the legal profession, that the judges need to have any view as to what technology is being used to prepare the documents, right? You don't say that you use Google to go search for things, but for some reason you're forced to disclose the e-discovery tool you're using. Like, where do they draw that line? Why do they do that? Why does that matter? So in federal court, there is a rule called 26G that requires, as the attorney for the party producing material, to certify that I've done uh, a reasonable search for the relevant material. Mm. And while I, I can never say I've produced all, I have to say I've done a reasonable process and, and I've produced substantially all or all I can find for a reasonable cost. So judges usually don't get involved in the process unless, so if we're using the search terms, you and I can't agree on the search terms. I want you to use fraud. You don't want to use fraud because maybe there's another Ponzi scheme you didn't know about and you're hoping Mm -hmm. that doesn't come up. Or it hits on too many documents. You don't want to look at 300,000 documents, most of which are not relevant. 
So that's one way it comes to the court. The other is I do my production. I give my certification. Say, wait a second. I know that I sent more uh, emails about XYZ and they're not in the production. She didn't do a good job. She didn't produce everything she should have produced because I know I sent her these emails and I still have them. So they go, you go to the judge and you say, I'm challenging her production. I want to do a motion to compel her to have to explain exactly what she's done and how she knows it works and why she didn't miss anything. And then right. the judge is pulled into having to look at the process and looking at the process involves looking at the technology and making decisions about whether that technology worked, whether the process was a valid process, whether I did proper quality control and so forth. So that's how the judges get involved. Got it. Got it. I, I totally understand now why you explain it, why the judge would care about that. But on the other hand, you're like, yeah, it's on the lawyer to do a good job, right? At some level. So it's interesting. The other place where they've come in earlier in the process is say you say, here's what I plan to do. I plan to throw all the documents down the stairs and the ones that are face up, I'll produce and the ones that are face down, I won't produce. And I say, that's absurd. That's not reasonable. And I run into court and say, he shouldn't be allowed to do that. So we've got the equivalent, and, and I've been called in as an expert in, in some of these cases, where what somebody has proposed to do using technology is so facially inadequate if you actually know what you're, you're doing and you know something about the technology that the party says, I don't want to wait six months until after they do the whole thing and spend $2 million and then challenge it. I want to challenge it mm. up front. And then talking about hating disputes, the, the courts dislike these disputes even more because then they're pulled in before there's even a set of facts. Yeah. So they have to decide in the abstract whether the, the technology is reasonable. And that's a position most of them generally do not like to be in. But when, I, when I'm an expert in that situation... What I don't want to happen is for you to spend six months and $2 million doing something unreasonable. And then I come in and say, it's not, this is not a good process. And then you say, I've already spent $2 million and it's too yeah. late. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I I'd love to get into the, the generative AI impl implications of this, because I think that I I'm curious, obviously, when you're litigating something in a court and there's a judge, they'll have the ability to say... Hey, I, it, just as you described, like the process by which you produce this is not sufficient or, or allowed or whatever the word is. But one clarifying question, does that apply to sort of corporate disputes as well? So for example, someone produces some contract that has a set of citations that they use some tool to find. And that tool that they use to find the citations wasn't actually approved. And therefore, something about that core contract is not valid or something. Does that come up in other situations as well? It can come up about the validity of the evidence. So which is actually the final version of the contract that you and I agreed on. You say this is the version and I say that's the version. And then looking at the data, mm -hmm. which is invisible data in the document about when it was created and when it was last modified. So that's another area where you get a lot of disputes, especially with corporations on authenticity. So this also comes up with HR evaluations, I claim you've discharged 
me for a discriminatory reason and you say, no, it was because your evaluation was bad. And then you produce this evaluation and I say, hey, wait a second, I never saw that evaluation. And then we find out that you created that Mm. after I sued you. Got it. One thing that I think back to your paper being a thing that the judges started to point to say this is approved. And I'm sure that it was a, I read it myself, it was a great paper, but why is that the standard test? Is it just a matter of having something to point to? Or as we think about now gen AI tech being tested, is there some standard by which people evaluate things to determine if it should be approved or not? In federal court, for somebody to be considered an expert and be able to testify in a particular subject, there is something called Federal Rule of Evidence 702. So I have to actually show you that I have expertise in that area, either by training experience. Mm. And the same thing is applied when a judge decides whether to admit evidence. They have to look at, is it scientifically reliable? Is it accepted by other people in that field? Has it passed peer review? So think now to radar guns that are used to check speed, DUI, to see if somebody is drunk while they're driving. All of this technology had to pass some criteria to be considered scientifically acceptable. So what we were trying to do was, even though discovery is usually evaluated under a reasonableness standard under this Rule 26G, we were saying, This is a sort of scientific approach. This is a technology. So we are going to treat it the way that any other scientific evidence that would be brought in. So that's why we wanted to, we did the science to be able to show that it, it, in fact, if it was evaluated under Rule 702 and and the, the criteria that go with that, that it would pass muster. Very helpful. Transitioning a bit, I love for you to give the the overview of what happened uh, in the situation where some lawyer had submitted something to a judge and it had written citations that actually didn't exist. And it actually turned out to be worse. I, you told me that it was actually a step worse than everyone thinks that it is. So do you mind just giving a bit of an overview of what that was, what happened, and then that next step people don't often talk about? Sure. So there was a case in the Southern District of New York, which is a federal court, where one of the parties submitted a brief in which six of the cases that they cited didn't actually exist. And most of us know that Gen AI and ChatGPT in particular hallucinates, means it when it doesn't know the answer to something, it makes it up. So that's what it did in this situation. It just made up case citations and it formatted them properly so they looked like real case sites. So they filed the case. Normally, when you're an attorney, you're expected to actually read the cases that you cite to make sure that they say what you think they say. But in this case, the attorney did not and just assumed that they were proper. And first, that what happened is the other side said, we can't find these cases. We've looked in official databases we have in the law, in the legal profession. We have legal databases where you go and pull up the case and you can read it. And so they motioned to the court saying, we can't (laughs) find any of the stuff we've called. The courts were filed. There are no cases on the docket that have those names. Or if they do, they're not about this matter or they're not about what they say. 
And yeah, it's mind-boggling. But the lawyer went back to find me these cases and print them <laughs> out, in which ChatGPT did. And he filed the copies of the cases and thought he was done with it. And then the court came back and said, what's going on here? These cases don't yeah. exist. We went back and asked the generative AI tool, like, were you going around with me? Were these real cases? And the tool said, of course they're real yeah. cases. You couldn't find them in any legal database. So you would think if somebody had accused you of manufacturing cases, you might go back to somebody other than your original source and you might actually read the case. So I think it was the not only the initial mistake, but that sort of doubling down yeah. and not realizing yeah. they had made a mistake, confessing up and falling on their sword yeah. right away that got even in more trouble with yeah, the court. I, I love that. It's so funny that they went back and just said, where are these cases? And ChatGPT gives them the cases. Of course, completely manufactured. It's great. And then understandably, judge sees that, a bunch of other judges see that and they say, no AI allowed in my courtroom, but I, I don't want to lead the witness. So maybe just talk about what you've seen after that and both correctly targeted and then some of the maybe not so well informed responses. Understandably, some courts got alarmed. Oh my God. This could yeah. happen to me, and I don't have the time to check every case that's being cited in every paper that's sent to me. About a half dozen courts between the U.S. and Canada issued what are called standing orders. Each judge is allowed to have their own set of orders that say, I like 12-point font or I like 14-point font. This is how I want attachments. I want hyperlinks. I don't want hyperlinks. I want a PDF, whatever. So... In the standing orders, they, they started to add language saying to the effect of, if you use generative AI, you must disclose it. If you use generative AI, you must certify that you've checked everything. If you use AI, you must disclose it. Now, generative AI and AI are not the same thing. AI is much broader. Right. So AI might encompass spell check or Grammarly, where you search for cases, there's natural language processing tools that allow you to say, give me all the cases for X that use AI. So it, it wasn't clear in the orders what was in scope and what was out of scope, what needed to be specified. They were all inconsistent. So now we, Judge Paul Graham, myself, and another computer scientist wrote an article saying this isn't the best way to approach this problem. One, if you're going to make a rule, it should be consistent across all the courts in your district. Number two, maybe you ought to consult with some people who actually know the difference between AI and generative yeah. AI and be clear on what it is you're prohibiting or whether you're requiring disclosure. N number three, by requiring disclosure, you're getting into legal strategy, which sort of starts to invade on material lawyers consider secret or protected. And number four, you're going to discourage people who can't afford lawyers being able to use these tools. We said, mm -hmm. we understand completely where this came from, but 
there are other sort of tools in the toolkit that would be more surgical in dealing with a very pragmatic, logical, measured response. So what are those things that you think, because at some point you're going to have to draw a line between what are we going to choose to disallow entirely, disclose only, or, or just not even talk about. So like, how do you think about drawing those delineations? There already are ethical rules. So there is something called Rule 11 that requires, again, of, of federal rule, but state rules that they're equivalent. So I have to certify what, that I've checked and that I have a, a legal and factual basis to assert what I'm asserting. So if I file a breach that has fake cases in it, that's already covered by Rule 11. I can get punished under Rule 11 for not having checked that. So you don't really need a separate standard order because you could already punish somebody under Rule 11. And if Rule 11 hasn't scared them enough, a standing order isn't going to scare them mm. anymore. We also have ethics rules that we are required to follow or rules of professional responsibility by virtue of the fact that we're members of the bar. So there's Rule 1.1, which says I have to be competent in my representation of you. And competence is defined to include technologically mm. competent. And if I use a tool that hallucinates and I don't check it, that's not technically competent. Number two, I have an obligation under the rules to be candid with the court. If I cite fake cases or fake facts, uh, I'm not being candid with the court and my opponent. So there are any ethics rules. And we know from some of the lawyers and that are being prosecuted in the U.S. Uh, for some of the January 6th stuff that your license can be taken away from you if a disciplinary body decides that you haven't practiced yeah. competently or honestly or dil diligently. And that should be enough fear because if a court sends you a disciplinary body takes that very seriously and is going to give that a good look and see. So our first point is there are already tools that should be sufficiently powerful to dissuade attorneys from doing this. And these people got terrible publicity. They were mocked in everything from the yeah. New York Times. So their careers are in the tank for the, for the most part in terms of their reputations. Yes, has it happened again? Yes, it happened again in a Texas case. But I don't think there are going to be more than a handful yeah. of those. So our view is why don't we give people notice on website? Why don't we give people notice in the court standing orders? But this requirement of disclosure and certification to us seemed like overkill. But then we said, if you're going to do it, then make sure it's very clear and that it's very consistent so that it's not different in every different court and that you're not inadvertently outlawing things that you really don't mean to be. I'm actually pleasantly surprised to hear your view that, first of all, it doesn't really require new rules. A lot of the stuff is already covered, actually all of it, if you take your view, which I like. But I was surprised to hear you be open to the idea of generated documents being usable at all. because. My view coming into this was like, hallucinations are just a non-starter. And sure, you can use it for a semantic search to pull up discovery or maybe to pull up 
citations, but to actually generate the document, that feels to me like a step too far given where the technology is today. But it sounds like you're saying actually it's important that in this, I think you said the word was pro se, I'm not sure the term, but that group of people, mm -hmm. they actually should be able to use that. And that's an important thing for that constituency. Is that the right way to think about, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Is that the right way to play back to you what you're saying? Yes, I think so. It depends how you use it and for what. So for maybe they use it to put in a bunch of cases and say, what for, here are some opinions from Judge Andrew, which of these arguments are based on what you've read about him going to be most acceptable or appealing to him. So that's one way to brainstorm. Or here's my brief. Can you... Make it more mm. concise. All of those kinds of things are perfectly acceptable. Or here are four arguments. What order might you put them in from strongest to weakest? Nothing wrong with any of that, as long as it's still your product and you're still exercising editorial control. World is completely different for the 80% of people who can't afford lawyers. And it's a very substantial number of people both in the U.S. and Canada who simply cannot afford legal representation. So there, are they better off using a tool that can generate a complaint or a pleading, a, a filing for them that is in the proper form, that it may not be perfect, but it's going to get them, at least they can pursue their yeah. rights. The other way, they can't do anything because I scribble on a yellow pad and file that in court. But here, I, I'd like a complaint against Andrew in Chicago, Illinois court. He is driving her too fast and he damaged, he drove into my fence and did $12,000 of damage to my fence. And he was negligent. He wasn't paying attention. He went busy texting. And GPT can yeah. do that, can generate that, and then maybe edit it. Maybe I don't, but it gets me, uh, obviously I have to make sure it didn't hallucinate, but the best chance of the hallucination is mostly going to be in the cases it cites, but not if I give it very clear instructions and I check it. So we call this access to justice. This is something that will increase the ability of people to bring lawsuits they, or defend lawsuits that they couldn't, they couldn't afford yeah. an attorney. It's such an amazing topic. It just has the potential to change so much about the legal profession. You can see now, I don't know what the multiple will be, but you look out even, I was going to say 10 years, but even just three, four, five, the multiple of, multiple of cases that are going to be brought can be so much larger than what we have today. And if you think about that world, where does your mind go? Do you start to cap out on the capacity of courts to deal with these things? Do they start to get litigated outside of courts? or I don't even know what the right set of options are here, but how do you think about that? It, it is a double-edged sword, as you point out, because now not only can I bring my case for the lion under the chair that's sending signals to the TV that's now the TV is defrauding me to go buy things and sending me wire messages or whatever. Not only can I draft a complaint about that, but I can draft the complaints and file that in every state. So it can also compound the mischief or the vexatious mm -hmm. lawsuits as well as the legitimate lawsuits. So yes, there is a concern 
that courts could be flooded uh, with cases by these 80% of the people who couldn't bring cases before who can now bring them. I don't know what that does unless we have tools that can start to screen legitimate cases uh, and try to those or to try to figure out up front, is there a reasonable basis to actually allow a human to spend the time to to read this? Or is it just craziness from the beginning? Because there are many such suits that get filed that unfortunately people with mental health issues or everybody can get angry and anybody can sue anybody in the United States. It doesn't mean there's an actual cause of action or that you actually suffer damages. You could just be angry, but there may not be yeah, what a crazy set of problems. Because then you get into, all right, with the court starting to use these models to decide what's, I forget the words you use, but a good case versus a bad case or, or a valid one versus invalid. How do you litigate that? And as the model regulated, that just feels like the response might just be, look, this is a can of worms we don't want to open. We're going to completely disallow anything generated document-wise in the courts. Yeah, we understand legal justice. That actually brings me to, brings me to the question I wanted to ask you next, which is where on the spectrum of consensus, this is legal justice, everyone should have the right to access these tools. I think there's a really good argument for that. All the way down to where you were back in 2010 on the e-discovery thing, you're completely nuts. There's no way this is going to happen. Where do you think that the, the world is? Are you off to the way ahead of the curve here? Or a lot of other people saying, look, we really actually do need to allow access to these tools and that's likely to happen in the next 24 months. All of it is a cost benefit calculation. So if I said to you, we don't have enough crisis hotline, we have more people who are distressed and considering suicide than people we can staff. Is somebody who calls at three in the morning who's considering killing themselves, is it better that they ring and nobody picks up the phone or that they ring and they get a chat box to them? This is really no different. We have to look at the cost and the benefits and what do we lose if we don't permit this and what are the burdens if we do permit this. And then as a a society, we have to weigh the costs and the benefits. For me, I think the access to justice is really important. It's frightening that so many people can't exercise their rights legitimately because they can't afford lawyers. And even if all of us do what's called pro bono, which is volunteer work, we all are strongly encouraged and we support how much of that we do on our when we renew our bar license. I don't believe it's required in most states, if not all states, but you do report it. Most of us do some free legal work, but even if all of us did tons of it, there still wouldn't be yeah. enough. So I think it's a cost benefit equation. I think the technology will get better, will improve over time, just as for electronic discovery, the technology has gotten better. And at the beginning, people said, no way I'm using a spam filter. And now we all use spam filters. So when we get used to AI, we just call it software. And at some point, that's what's going to happen here is that people will get much more comfortable with it. And then it'll just be another piece. Yeah. I love that quote. I'm definitely saving that one. That's a good one. Switching gears, as interesting as that was, I want to make sure you have time to touch on the other interesting topics here. So let's go to the issue of 
what's real and what isn't in the world of evidence. And I, I'd love for you to tell the story of the, the card game study, because I think that's just a great way of explaining it. So as Gen AI improves, generative AI, deepfakes and the ability to default on people is increasing exponentially because now you have enough of my voice. You frankly had enough of my voice after the first minute to create a tape of me and to call my bank and have me say, I'd like to withdraw $20,000 and uh, give it to Andrew this afternoon because I owe him mm -hmm. some money. And that tape will con convince my banker that he was speaking to me. And so we have, as a matter of fact, I read a very recently a story in The Guardian about somebody using a tape of someone's daughter calling the mother and I really need your help when crying and saying, paying whatever he asks. And she was fully prepared to do that until somebody said, are you absolutely sure that's not a deep fake? And it turned mm -hmm. out it was. So we're moving into this world where our eyes and ears, which we rely on and juries rely on and judges rely on to assess evidence and decide who's guilty and who's not are no longer going to be terribly good at that. And what's even worse is that audio and visual information make an imprint on us in a profound way, even if we are aware that something could potentially be a deep fake. If we see it in audio or video, we tend to believe it more. So there was an experiment that was done fairly recently where a bunch of college students were playing a gambling game and the game went fine, no problems, everybody participated and nothing untoward happened. And then after the game, the participants were all shown a, a videotape of the game, except in that videotape, Andrew was cheating and he was seen switching uh, a card from his pocket. And then afterwards they asked all the participants, are you willing to sign an affidavit to swear that you saw Andrew cheat? And more than half of them are willing to do that, even though they never saw it, but by seeing it in audio visual, it somehow changes their perception or memory sufficiently that they're now willing to swear that they saw it. And you can start to think about sheets where they show you six pictures of the person who perpetrated the crime, one that sort of looks like that person that was AI generated and that sort of replaces the picture that was in your head, even though they mm -hmm. don't look perfect. So I worry a lot over what are deep fakes, but what are they going to do to the legal system and the justice system and judges and juries and read news and consume YouTube videos mm -hmm. and photos and all kinds of things that are no longer going to be able to re rely on just reading it and deciding this is true. So how do we fix this? How do we deal with this? One of the things that has been suggested is first the requirement of disclosure when you're dealing with AI. Now... Bad actors are not going to comply with right. that, so you can't force everybody to do that. Number two is something called watermarking. That is putting something invisible in the generative AI 
produced that basically indicates that and that if somebody goes to look for it, they can find this right. watermark. But there are ways to remove watermarks. And so one thing I could do is say I generate my pleading, uh, pleading being something you file in court. I generate that using generative AI and it's watermarked, but then I take the watermarked version and I go to another one that I found that doesn't watermark. And I say, can you just paraphrase this? And now it paraphrases it without the right. watermark. That's a problem. There's another problem, which is one of the ways detectors determine whether something is created by a human or created by a bot is by the sort of creativeness or the unpredictability of the language because like when I'm talking to you here, I've got ums and, and other things that come in. My thinking isn't perfectly linear and you don't get that right. with a bot. So it's fairly easy to, not fairly easy, but there are tools that can distinguish between what's written by a bot, which is going to be less surprising, more, more perfect grammar and so forth. But it turns out that people whose native languages in English use much simpler grammar and have much more predictable text and language, and they are often mistaken mm. for bots. So that you've got that problem where everything that's written by somebody who isn't a native speaker gets tagged as fake. So there, there are lots of challenges yeah. with technically doing this. And I don't know that we know the answer. To I was going to say, and, and every single solution you posed, I think best case, it works for a couple of years or a period of time, but we're, we're heading toward the inevitable, which is that there is no reliable way, I think, to decide between or to accurately determine what is produced fake and what isn't. And so I guess in that world, assuming you agree with that, what do we how does the legal profession change? We could rely more on humans to just show up and be witnesses of something having happened, as unreliable as that may be in certain situations, or, or how do you think about it? There are a couple of issues first, and, and this may interest you because you're being in venture capital. There's much more investment in the tools generating the AI than the tools detecting. So my incentive is to build a tool that does it, not to build a good detector sure. financially for the most part. Number two is the two are in an arms race anyway, because when you create generative AI, there are two algorithms that get are involved in that. One is that, that actually generates the content and the other called a discriminator that says, no, you didn't get the fingers right. Uh, do that again. So, and then, and it's an iterative process. So the generator will generate content. The discriminator will try to make it better by showing where it's not realistic. So the better the discriminators get, the better the generators get. And so it's a constant battle between the two of them. So that's part of the technical challenge that I agree with you, that as one gets better, the other gets better. And the criminals are very good at figuring out ways around these things. So you've got less investment plus a difficult technical challenge and uh, it, it leads to real problems. So I, I, I think we're living a, 
trust but verify world that we're going to have to verify things. I had told you a story where I read something and I really had no idea whether it was true or not. And I said, note to self, go do some research on this. But I don't know that we want to have to do research yeah. on everything, but I think that's the world we're moving into for the time being. Yeah. It's like, okay, now you need to do a lot more work on each individual situation. And also the amount of situations in the legal profession are going to increase massively because you can generate them. And so it further increases the scale of the problem. It, no easy solution, I guess I would say. And and I know we only have a few minutes left. I want to make sure we touch on this last topic. The question is, do publishers have any recourse for models being trained on their data or anyone that has publicly had data on the internet? It feels a little bit like, not buyer's remorse, but remorse for the fact that you did something and you didn't really appreciate what the future would look like. And I don't really have a lot of sympathy for those people. I don't know how you respond to that positively. It's tough, but w what is your sense there? Do you think that these can merit coming like from the New York Times? There are already a number of cases where artists have challenged tools that are now create a poem in the style, in my style, or create a painting in my style. And it's going to come down to a couple of things. One is the concept called fair use. If I take a couple of paragraphs from a book you've written and I give it to my students to read, that's considered fair use. They don't all have to go out and buy the whole book just to read a couple of paragraphs for an educational purpose. If I'm writing a satire or a critique, I can take some paragraphs. And if I go to 15 Van Gogh museums and I look at all of the Van Goghs and I have an idea of what a Van Gogh is in my head and I go paint something in the style of Van Gogh, that's still considered fair use. What is more problematic, and which happened in the Warhol case, is if I create something based on your work, and mine now competes in the same market as yours, so occasionally or for critique or satire, but my news is now competing with your news, or my book that looks like yours, or my peer is now competing, that's not fair. So the argument goes to the original person who spent many years training, et cetera. So one issue the courts are going to have to decide is what is and isn't fair use. And some of it is the scraping that's done, like Mora going to 20 museums and looking at 20 Van, Van Goghs, and they're all in her head, but she hasn't really taken anything from anybody. Or... Are bits and pieces actually in the rhythm that are being used, which is different? So there are technical arguments, there are legal arguments, and, and the courts are going to have to sort through these arguments. I, I'm maybe a little more sympathetic than you if somebody has spent their whole life perfecting an artistic talent. I can understand their being able to either opt out or say, license my work if you want to use it. That doesn't seem completely unreasonable. The problem is we now have systems that are already developed that did scrape stuff off the internet that was copyrighted, didn't get permission, didn't allow people to opt out, aren't paying licensing fees. So now there is some negotiation licensing fees. I think the Times is trying that first with OpenAI. Nobody wants to be in the position where a court says, destroy your algorithm because you've taken information you shouldn't have taken off the internet. Of course, the counter argument is, 
internet's a public space. If you didn't want this to be seen, don't put it there. But I'm not sure all of the books and things like that were copyrighted were on open site. There are books for free or movies for free without paying for them. And those, I'm sure, did get scraped for some of these tools. So it sounds like there are really two questions. One is, to what degree can we draw a line between what is produced and where did it come from? And second of all, does it have a materially negative impact on your business associated with that thing that you'd made in the first place? So right. right. About it. Okay. Yeah. It not only are similar, but is it transformative? And then in the Warhol case, they said that his paintings were not sufficiently different from the actual photographs. His estate argued they, they were. Uh, that's a matter of interpretation, I think, can be somewhat subjective. And, but the issue was it was competing in the same market. Or yeah. at least that's what the court said, is buy the photograph or they could buy the painting. Maybe they took the painting instead of the photographs and that person didn't get paid. Yeah. What a world we live in now. And I'd say that question will have even more or that comment will have even more sort of emphasis in the next few years, it feels like. But Mara, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for doing this. And I hope we can come back here over the following months and years as the world evolves. It's a very exciting time. Happy to talk about these issues. They're not going away. I agree with you. It's just going to get more complicated over time. Well, fun to talk about in any case.